Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now that heart is beating fast And that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about Stormy weather Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Radical Australia. Yes, you're right in thinking this voice does not sound like Joe Toscano. That's because Joe Toscano is doing some hard yards down on the steps of Parliament House and uh, working hard for public housing. But Radical Australia goes onward and upward. I'm Dale, and we're very lucky to have with us in the studio today Fiona York. Hi. Welcome, Fiona. So uh, I guess uh, I just have to run this the way Joe normally runs this. Like he says, uh, we've, we've only got two questions, and uh, the first is just to orientate our listeners. So uh, what uh, year were you born? I was born in the 70s, 1975. Ah, just not so far from me. And, uh, okay, yeah, the next one's a little bit more esoteric. Yeah. Uh, what's the earliest memory that you have of being on planet Earth? Mm, I was thinking about this. Um, I think it might be a memory of my great auntie, who was a really staunch Catholic matriarch, mm. a big influence on my mum, who's... Um, was the oldest of eight kids and her mum died when she was a teenager and the great auntie stepped in to do a lot of the work I guess and much very much a moral compass you know but the whole hats and gloves and stockings at all times church every Sunday rah 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 and I have this vague memory of her with her little high-heeled shoes and her stockings walking through a broken drain with wool. We would try not to get her feet wet, and that really stuck with me. I think I was probably about three. Yeah, I suppose yeah. everything's so pristine. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, how's she going to navigate this puddle? Yeah. <laughs> Did she manage? Of course. <laughs> All ladies do. Style and aplomb. <laughs> Great. And so uh, you mentioned your mum. Your mum and dad still with us? Um, yeah, they're both still alive, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And uh, what type of... Well, you say your mum was influenced, you think, a lot by your... Your great aunt. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What type of folks were, were you? Did, did were, were they? they? Yeah. So they got divorced when I was six, and so I was raised by my mum in suburban Perth. Okay. Um, and she took on her Catholic heritage and passed it on to us up until she became very disillusioned with the church um, when I was a teenager, which was a relief to me because I also thought it was a load of shit by that stage. <laughs> but we did go to a Catholic primary school, mm-hmm. and that. Um, that kind of social justice nun thing was going on. So a lot of my mum's friends or, you know, in the, at the time were um, working with Aboriginal people and, and marginalised people. The school was really multicultural. There was lots of people escaping the troubles in Ireland and from a whole bunch of different countries that were 
um, all Catholics as well. So okay. it was that kind of thing about not being mean to other kids because of their skin colour and also not being mean to the trees. Um, so, wow. <laughs> but, but also still corporal punishment. We used to have to hit, each, hit ourselves with rulers and the nuns <sighs> were pretty hardcore. So... Wow. Uh, yeah. And so that was in the 80s. Yeah. 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 Wow. So what you, what, you have to chastise yourself. Yeah. We have to, I remember sitting at the back of the classroom and having to hit myself over the <gasps> knuckles with a ruler and wow. being told by the nun up the front, it's not loud enough, I can't hear you. <laughs> it's so sadistic when you think about <gasps> it. But And yeah, we had a principal who had a strap and his strap had a name and I think oh. the name... I think the strap's name was Henry, and he'd walk oh. around saying, you and me and Henry are going to have a little chat. Oh, goodness gracious, that's <laughs> terrifying for a child. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> My dad had one of those straps that, you know, he, you know he'd bend over, fold in half and snap. Yeah. And yeah. the snap of the strap was enough to just put ice in your veins, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's shocking. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of torture, really. Yeah. So um, primary school was a, a Catholic affair. Mm-hmm. Did you? What type of um, time did you have in primary school? Did you find? Um, um, you know, was there anything in particular that you found yourself drawn to I, or you're interested in? I or? didn't love it. I, I, it wasn't too bad, but I was a bit of a. We, I felt like a bit of. I guess because my parents were divorced and Catholics don't divorce, or it wasn't recognised yeah, back then. Yeah. So I think I was one of only two kids in the entire school that whose parents had separated. Wow. So. And we sort of hung out with other kids outside of school who also were the children of single parents. And it was really low. We were broke, you know. So Mm. it was that kind of thing where um, mum and my other friends' parents or mothers were doing really low-paid work. Like I remember we used to have to wash the priest's clothes for 20 bucks a week or something and having to, like, iron his handkerchiefs and all this kind of weird shit. I mean, 20 bucks a week, come on, you know. But it was that sort of – and our other friend – um, she cleaned the church for money on the weekends. So I remember money being super tight and it being a real stress for my mum, mm. which then became a stress for me. And as an adult, I've always been really um, careful about money yeah, okay. and tried to pass that on to my own kids as well because, yeah, the stress of not being able to pay the mortgage. I mean, obviously, home ownership, we, we had my mum was paying off a house, which wow. these days you wouldn't be happy. It would be next to impossible yeah, for right. a single parent. That's right, yeah. yeah. So it, that's, a, that's a change in, in my lifetime. So, yeah, but I remember the mortgage payments being really stressful yeah. and the bills being really stressful. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's what my main memory of primary school is, has been a bit different and the other kids not having to stress about money. Mm. And if you talked about it, it was uncomfortable because people didn't want to hear. They just mm. were a bit feeling sorry for you. Yeah, right. So, yeah. So it's sort of um, charity not beginning at home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then the kids that came over from Ireland, I remember they're being super tough and heaps, heaps more, um, like, less advantaged than we were. So even though, yeah, the, there was definitely a lot more disadvantage in that school than what we were experiencing. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And so this was out in Perth? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, was it... Um, like Perth proper or? Yeah, it's suburban Perth, like south of the river, um, hot, bland, flat. Oh, really? All water stains on all the fences. Oh, God. That kind of thing. <laughs> just, just reminds me of Queensland. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, um, so you did all of your primary school out there. Mm-hmm. Did you do high school out there as well? Yeah, but we, um, we, I went to a state school. Oh, okay. So after that, yeah, so it's in, in Perth, it's year eight to year 12. So you start a bit later. And so, yeah, I went to the local high school down the road, Ross Moyne. How did you find that um, in comparison? Yeah, it was a 
bit, it was pretty different. It was really segregated along um, race lines. So there was about 50% um, sort of Chinese, Malaysian, Asian background, and the rest were white kids, and you just weren't mixing. There was no mixing. And the racism was really full on, and I remember being really confronted by it, but also kind of into it to start with as well, to fit in, and then my mum just cut me down. I was like, don't, don't do that. So, yeah, it it was a weird... Um, segregation and the white kids were pretty awful mm. and I couldn't wait to get out of there. I hated high school. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, during your schooling, was there anything, any any particular like subjects or anything that you found yourself drawn to or in, more interested in than others? Yeah, I guess English and politics and that kind of stuff was really? my thing, yeah. Mm. I didn't like maths or sport. <laughs> <laughs> but you say politics, was that, um, I suppose in high school, that that's um, sociology and yeah, stuff? Yeah, I can't remember what it was called now. It had some weird name, but yeah. Yeah, we used to have SOS, the yeah, Study of Society. That's right, there was something yeah. like that, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah politics and... I think, yeah, I was just trying to get my kind of, I fell into a little subculture of goths and alternative kids and we just <laughs> hung out, you know, and just tried not to talk to anyone. And and when the NME magazine came from England, we would be like so excited because <laughs> something exciting was happening. It wasn't Perth. Perth was bad in the 80s. Oh, you know, it just reminds me of, of you know, Queensland because, yeah. you know, like growing up a goth um, in the heat. Yeah, yeah. It takes dedication. <laughs> it really it? does. <laughs> Those boots, the eyeliner. And the all black, the you know, and the sun yeah, just being relentless. Yeah. I know, it's very uncomfortable. And uh, so how did you uh, how did you find you did at high school? Like, uh, were you a studio student? Were you more socialised? No, I was just trying to get through it. Like, I really, But I didn't do too badly. I didn't put in much effort, but I also didn't do too badly. Um, but probably by the time I was, like, 16, all of my social life was outside of high school. Okay. I was going into the inner city and hanging out with, you know, other goths <laughs> <laughs> and finding my people, I guess, and just school wasn't where I wanted to be or... Yeah. I didn't really have many friends there or anything, so yeah, fair enough. And so, but you did all right. Yeah. So, um, did, does that mean that you went on to uni straight yeah, away? Yeah, I did go on to uni straight away. Um, and, and how did that go? Again, it wasn't. I didn't. The whole social thing didn't appeal to me. I just was again just trying to get through it, mainly because I didn't really know what I was wanting to do. Okay. So whereabouts did you go? At in Perth as well at Murdoch. So okay. I did politics and philosophy and sociology and women's studies. It was called then. Now it's gender studies. But yeah, so I did that for three years and got my. Bachelor of Arts in useless subjects, oh, but later on it came in. So. <laughs> it came in useful later. Yeah, well, yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, what made you um, choose those subjects? Those subjects, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I was well, definitely feminist because of my mum. So, when I was a kid, we would be going to. Um, different rallies and stuff. So we were politi- I was politically aware and active. So mum was involved in things like um, Palm Sunday Peace Rally, the um, East Timor issue at the time, yeah. um, Aboriginal land rights. It was the Don't Celebrate 88 thing because yeah, wow. it was around that time. That's really progressive, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so she was definitely a marching on the streets type. Um, and so we went to lots of rallies. Also at that time in high, was it high school? It was primary school, actually. Um, they were redeveloping the, the Old Swan Brewery, 
mm. which was at the time sort of derelict building on the on the Swan River, okay. but it was also a sacred site. Oh. And so they wanted to turn it into a microbrewery or whatever it is now. I, think it might, I don't even know what it is, but there was a green ban on it and there was a blockade picket line wow. there. And so we used to get up, my mum used to drive me at 6am to the picket for an hour or two and then drive back to school in the morning. So that was kind of my first experience of meeting Aboriginal people, but also being part of a a blockade, like a picket. We weren't there for the big bust or the arrest or anything, but we were, it was something that I did when I was a kid. So Mm. when, when high school came around, I felt that those middle class, horrible people in the suburbs didn't understand the real world, you know, and that I was kind of like, yeah. So my first boyfriend was bisexual and his oldest, his, um, his ex, who was still living with us at the time, had HIV. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was very much a diagnosis to death very quickly. Mm. So at that really young age, I was involved in the HIV kind of AIDS stuff as well, around Mm. World AIDS Day, and really inspired by ACT UP and those kind of much more radical take down the stock exchange kind of, you know, Mm. let's get these these things happening on a real kind of frontline level. And so I guess that's what drew me to politics at uni. But... I wasn't interested in uni politics or student unions yeah. or things like that. Yeah. 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 It's interesting, um, you know, yeah, the people in your life sort mm. of, yeah, really do inform how you, well, your frame of reference to the world. Yeah. You know, so having someone who was affected by HIV, especially at that time, yeah. You know, because there was so much misinformation yep. and intentional misinformation just to, that supported bigotry, yep. you know. Um, it must have been difficult to transcend that. But I suppose, you know, having someone in your life, you know, who had to deal with it immediately. Yeah, well, know? it was the real day-to-day kind of thing where nurses were having to come around to the home to help him and he didn't have any family. He was estranged from his family. So the funeral was really awful. It was just this kind of you know, the black sheep's return to the fold kind of thing. And, and it was just bad, but there was a lot of, he had a lot of, I mean, we had a lot of gay friends. I had still do. And so that was really strong as well. This kind of supporting in the community and making sure that the community look out for each other. Mm. And I think that to, to this day exists, but people were dying so fast, you know, it was Mm. so fast and the medication was terrible and Mm. no one really knew what the outcomes were, but everybody was terrified. So, Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was the early nineties. It was a pretty weird time, you know. Yeah, and and as you say, there and there wasn't so there wasn't the advances that there are now in yeah. medication, yeah. and there was still a hell of a lot of stigma associated mm-hmm. with even being gay because of HIV. Yeah, you, you couldn't hold hands with another man in public. No way, it wasn't okay. Yeah. Even at even at um, even at World AIDS Day rallies, he couldn't. You know, it was. It was too confronting. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Australians are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that was the, that was the that was the fear that was holding gripping the mainstream world at that yeah. point. Well, there was the Grim Reaper ads. Do you remember that? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And that was just terrifying people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was, and that's all they were designed to do—not to inform people, yeah. but just to terrify them and to other yeah. an entire section of the community. Yeah, but then on the same. By the same token, there was also a really good harm minimisation stuff going on at that time. So there was needle exchanges and giving out condoms at schools and maybe not at schools, but they seemed to be around at health centres all the time. And that was good to know that that was around. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think uh, some or this just by the way, you know, uh, some of the uh, more progressive harm minimisation stuff was mm. done by some of the most conservative governments and all because they knew 
as economic rationalists, mm. it made sense to make uh, needle exchanges available because for society down the road, yep. it'll cost less in the long run. Yeah, if only they had that same view on housing or any of the other issues. I'm, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was quite surprised to learn about um, John Howard's involvement in um, needle exchanges mm. and, and getting, uh, getting you know, community health uh, dedicated to injecting drug users yeah. really early on in the piece. Yeah. And and it was purely from an economic rationalist point of view for him. Yeah. But, um, you know, it makes such a difference, mm. you know. And it was really leading the world at that time too. Mm. Yeah. At that time. Uh, yeah. 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 It's almost like we're going backwards, isn't it? I'm sure we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, You've uh, you've done uni. You, mm. You've made your way through the. I, I'm surprised you didn't, like, you know, do what most kids who go straight on to uni, you know, drop out and mm. have a year off or so. But you managed to do the whole three years straight away. Yeah, mm. and then once it was done, it was done. I never looked back at it. I just was, yeah. And then I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I started travelling around. Um, Australia to six years with my friends and oh, nice. and finding where I wanted to go, which, yeah, I was clueless at the time. What sort of places were you drawn to? I went up to Broome. I went to Cairns. Um, yeah, went all over the place, up the centre as well. Yeah, but I ended up um, by chance in East Gippsland, oh. and that's where I ended up doing most of my activism. Okay, so what, yeah. uh, what, what did you end up doing in East Gippsland? Um, so I... So it was... The early, well, actually, this weekend is the 25th anniversary of the Goonga Environment Centre, Gecko, which was where I ended up about, I probably ended up there maybe nine months after it started. Okay. And there was a festival in November 1993 that was put together by the Wilderness Society, Friends of the Earth and the Local Environment Group. Mm. And they did a whole bunch of simultaneous forest blockades and raised awareness of the issues and then kind of just stuck around and ended up renting a house in the valley which was called Goongra and formed an environment centre and it, I loved it because it was non-hierarchical, there was no structure, it was just if you think you need, see a job that needs doing, do it, like collaborate with people, work out what needs to be done and it was, we were so young and we were running these campaigns by ourselves basically with not really much help but it came from that there was friends of the earth kind of had their philosophy and they their sort of people started it so it was very much around making sure the indigenous um, elders were consulted making sure that the workers we had worker liaison police liaison um, and local community we wanted to integrate with them but it was very much a um, hostile environment everywhere else back then in East Gippsland. It was pretty full on. People were getting beaten up and mm. threatened and gun pulled on them and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, the 90s were, for especially forest blockades, mm. there was some pretty... Um, yeah, and scary, scary stuff going on. So yeah. um, what, what blockades were you involved in during the, um, the 90s? The first one was... Sellers Road, and that's when I got arrested for the first time doing stuff. Yeah, And then, but mainly I did police liaison and tried to stop people from getting arrested. Sure. Yeah, but um, <laughs> that didn't go so well. No? Um, <laughs> not that time. And But then the biggest one by far was Gulungguk, which was started in 97, and that was pretty life-changing for me and for many, many people. So, How so? Um, I think because it was the... It started in January, it got set up in January, and there were probably 50 different people there every week. So there was a really big turnover of people. It was summer. We set up a huge camp, a huge blockade, 
And when it finally got busted on World Environment Day in 1997 um, by John Howard, um, they ended up, everyone that had been there basically, dropped everything and came rushing back. So even though it was winter and it was muddy and cold and appalling and really not a great time to be logging, Mm -hmm. um, we just blockaded them day in, day out, day in, day out. It was like 300 people arrested in a month, I think it was. Yeah, right. And... Yeah, it was really full on and people fought tooth and nail for it. And it was spectacular forest as well, absolutely spectacular. And what were they looking to do, like just chain drag the whole lot or something? Yeah, yeah, they did. They clear filled it, yeah. So, and it's old growth. Yeah, it's yeah. old growth rainforest. Um, it's also two types of rainforest that only overlap in certain areas. So mm-hmm. it was cool temperate and warm temperate together. And it was also a World Heritage River right through the middle of it. And it had gigantic egg rocks all the way through these huge trees. It was an untouched valley. And they went right into the middle, into the best bit, and logged the heart out of it. And we fought tooth and nail. And so, yeah, it burnt out a lot of people. People really got fucked up from it. Mm. Um, but also it was totally inspiring, yeah. Mm. So... We, yeah, my daughter was conceived there. So oh, she's lovely. my marker for time. She's turning 21 <laughs> in January. Wow. So, yeah, so there was lots of people. Actually, 3CR was really integral to that time as well. Um, we had the community media from 3CR and Scar TV at the time there as well, day in, day out. And Bob Brown was arrested. The person that just climbed um, Mount Everest also climbed a tree up there and we had Channel 9 or someone doing some live satellite link-up thing. And, yeah, it was pretty epic. Mm. Yeah, yeah well, it certainly got a lot of um, uh, mainstream media attention, mm. but not necessarily the most positive mainst- mm. attention mm. from the mainstream media. Yeah. And as they like to do, um, you know, putting a negative spin on the people who are actually trying to yeah. trying to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it um, must be frustrating. And like you say, uh, you know, people get burnt out. Mm. What stopped you from getting burnt out? Um. I'm stubborn, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I think, well, because I had kids as well, that um, that meant that, because I was pregnant during that first blockade in 97. So by the time that ended, I was about to have a kid, you know. So mm-hmm. that pulled me out of it. Mm-hmm. I didn't go straight back into it, but I was always at the Environment Centre. So that blockade ended up going for another five years and I had another kid in between. So I was still involved, but I was rarely lying in the mud in the middle of the night. And I think that's... Uh, that's a killer because sometimes what happens and I'm seeing it now actually um, it, people think that they're the only ones and it's imperative and it's now and the, long, the older I am the more I realise that it's always going to be mm. this sense of imperative it's got to happen now mm. or else n- never going to happen and actually there's always going to be something that needs to be done yesterday you yeah. know the deadlines are always going to be really harsh and full on and mm. it, you aren't the only one that can do it it's alright to step back yeah. And, yeah, people will cope without you. Yeah, well, it, it, it's hard to learn, isn't it? Because it feels like there's just such a small force of yep. people. Yeah, You know, and you don't want to let anyone down. That's but, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so you say you got pregnant. So did you, you hook up with your partner? Yeah, so um, I, I met him at, the, he was also from Perth, weirdly, but I <laughs> met him at the Gulungook blockade and we stuck it out for 10 years and did pretty good. But then after 10 years, we called it quits so yeah yeah. so now i've got a 17 year old and a 21 year old wow yeah well you're doing all right (laughs) i would never have guessed you've got a 21 year old um so uh that that must have been interesting in itself you know Mm. having to choose uh you know where to live Mm. um 
with children in mind. Yeah. So where where did you then base yourself? In uh, lived in Goongarra. So uh, there was a school there, um, and there was. Well, I mean, we had to kind of pull strings to get a rental, but we did end up getting a rental, and I ended up. Um, after a time buying a old roadhouse that cost 20 grand. Wow. And I paid it off on the doll. <laughs> wow. So that was a pretty good thing. Um, yeah. And now the roadhouse is used as the base for the environment centre. And, yeah, my kids are still involved in the forest campaign. So, so are you dragging them along to blockade? Yeah, yeah. That, well, one of them was um, when she was a baby, slept in a box underneath the desk at Gecko while I dealt with all of the legal and media stuff, which was pretty cool. Um, the other one is now today involved in forest stuff. So, yeah, yeah great. they still go out stuff. Great. So you... Um they, so they both did their schooling uh, out there? Yeah. Yeah? Um, but there's no high school. So oh. when high school came around, we had to move to Melbourne. We didn't have to. We moved to Melbourne. Mm. Yeah. And how was that for you after being in the bush for so long? Um, I tried to live in both places for a little while because um, I didn't, didn't want to give it up. Mm. Um, but, yeah, by the time I was driving, it's seven hours drive, right? So it was a real, it was hard. And I was also working in the middle in community health, so I was, juggling too much and then I ended up going that and Melbourne well the things about Melbourne I loved at the time was internet being fast and hot water coming out of the taps and <laughs> Just <a little laughs> exciting things, things gas heating mm. so yeah that's what I liked about Melbourne. yeah so um when you're in Melbourne uh mm. yeah you mentioned uh, you were involved in community health mm. but um when did you get involved in community health and in what capacity? I started working at a neighbourhood house up really far up in the bush, really, really far away, and most of the population was over 65, and um, I ended up just working in community health in the aged care area Mm -hmm. and have been working in aged care ever since. So um, it's interesting. It's a marginalised group of people, and especially rural people, Mm. but also... um, older people that haven't got a job or haven't got a house or have got, you know, people that have had single parents and not had a great income. Mm. So the sorts of people that I work with now or my organisation that I work for now deals with, they, they're not the stereotypical baby boomer that owns their own house and has a, um, has a lucrative super mm. nest egg. So, and in the country, it's really marginal. There's lots of illiteracy. Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy. So you find out quite a lot when you see populations age. Mm. And so I also worked in elder abuse for a long time as well. Mm. And you see the kinds of things that people do to their families. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I don't know how it happened. I just ended up working with older people and still am. Yeah. So, um, you're in Melbourne, you've got, uh, you've got your kids going to high school Mm -hmm. and you're working in, Community health, that's got to be, you know, quite uh, a drain on a young mother. Yeah, I guess so. I, I just kind of, you do what you've got to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, um, yeah, I don't know. I've got lots of mates down here. I do really, really miss the forest and miss being out in the bush, though. So I do try to get out, in, out of Melbourne a lot. Um, but I want to work. My work, all of the work that I've ever done, I want it to be meaningful. I don't want to be just a pay packet. Mm. So I want to work for organisations that have good values and are aligned with mine in some way. So when I was working in elder abuse and I also worked in the ethnic sector for a long time, mm. um, and that was a great job. So, yeah, I want to work in the community sector with people who care about what they're doing. And, and, yeah, so I guess that sustains you as well. 
Mm. Uh, you're listening to Radical Australia. We're having a chat with Fiona York. It's just gone 4.30. And uh, we're just uh, learning a little bit about uh, uh, Fiona's work uh, with the elderly. Mm. Yeah. Um, when you talk about uh, elder abuse, yeah. uh, what, what sort of things did you come across? Were you finding um, that was prevailing? Yeah, it's pretty... But I guess most people think elder abuse, it's around nursing homes and mm. that kind of stuff, but the sorts of elder abuse that we were seeing in the community was um, usually adult children either scamming their parents out of money or socially isolating them or, or bullying them in some way, you know? Mm. And it was things like... Um, so for non English speaking people where the adult children are the kind of person who navigates the system and maybe brings the documents, reads the mail, that kind of stuff. Mm. Right it's you're right for the picking if yeah. if there's someone that's gonna It's very isolating, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So um and you don't want to say anything bad about your own kids. Mm. So you're not gonna tell your friends about it, you're not gonna reach out for services. Mm. So I did a whole bunch of work with different ethno specific organisations and community leaders around um, what's the best way to get this out in the open? How do we talk about it? Um, what sort of things are happening? And we made some stories and made some films and, and had them overdubbed into different languages. And, oh, great. And then we had bilingual people go out and speak about it in the community. So you did outreach as well. Yeah, and it was really interesting, um, the sorts of things that people would talk about and wouldn't talk about. It was, there, was very, there was lots of similarities, and, but it depended a lot on the migration history. So... For example, um, if the if the person migrated post-war, they probably own their own home, and so that type of elder abuse is maybe going to be the second generation getting impatient for the inheritance and wanting the, wanting the home. Mm. The ones that have migrated more recently um, are more likely to be living in overcrowded conditions with their family, mm. and there might be some expectation that, oh, we'll bring grandma over and she'll look after the kids while we go and work. Mm. And... Um, the grandma's like, cool, I, I've got someone to, my family's going to need me and stuff, mm. but then maybe it's getting harder and harder and nobody really cares about her needs and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, and there's no networks, no yeah. um, net support networks. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and a lot of the times it doesn't go pear-shaped, but um, when it does, what happens and where do people go and mm. how do they get information and, and what help can they get? What, and what sort of help? Yeah, it's not great. Um, yeah. so, um, I used to work for Seniors Rights Victoria, so that would be the sort of point of call. Um, but I, when now in my current work at Housing for the Aged, what people want is housing. So it's not that they want to resolve or mediate or anything with their kids or they don't want a legal option, they don't want to go to the police, they just want to get a house for the, um, either for themselves or for their kids so the situation is over um, and so that we've seen a really big jump in elder abuse in the last 12 months so um, do you think it's a jump in abuse or a jump in just its visibility I think it's yeah I think it's visibility I also think it's because we're now because of our work in the community we're a trusted organisation and so people are telling us about it yeah. and coming to us. Yeah. yeah, Word of mouth is so important. Well, yeah, because yeah. It, yeah, there's certainly no mainstream support um, of, of these more grassroots groups, no. as, especially when it's community orientated and not profit driven. Yeah, and that's become so much worse over the last little while. Like I've just watched it disintegrate in, like a train wreck in slow-mo and it's really like when I used to work in the community age sector, there was local groups and they did have funding and, and ethno-specific agencies did have money and councils had money and, and people, it wasn't perfect, but people could go to their council or go to their local community health centre and get a familiar face and a service and maybe the language that they speak. Mm. And now 
since it's gone federal. Um, it's all just about so-called consumer choice mm. where, you know, an older person that maybe isn't literate in English or their own language and is relying on their adult children has to navigate this massively complicated system mm. just to get someone to come and visit them, you know? Mm. And it's just an absolute mess. And mm. it's, we, knew it was, we knew it was coming. When they proposed it years ago, everyone was saying, oh, meh, don't go bad. And sure enough, here we are. So what did, the, what did they propose years ago? So years ago, the, the government would give the money to, well, it was held by the state, and it was given to agencies to do what they wanted. So the for, state government. Yeah, yeah. So the state government would give it to, say, council. And local government will go, okay, we've got 10 socially isolated people who speak Greek down in this suburb. Let's get a bus and we'll put on a group forum or whatever. Mm. I'm being simplistic, but you get my idea, yeah. Mm. Now it's like those 10 Greek people will have 10 individual packages and they can choose whether or not they want to go to that activity. And if they do want to go to that activity, then it will be 10 different taxi vouchers or 10 different... Um, things instead of one bus because the the provider of the service can't pull their resources to be able to mm. to do that kind of stuff, you know. And has a lot of like everything like everything else mm. ha- have a lot of these services sort of been um, farmed out to private yeah. organisations? Yes, yeah, it's open market. <sighs> and of course, the bigger you are, the dodgier you are, and also the cheaper you are. So if you've got a package that isn't worth much, why would you go to the more expensive? ethno-specific agency which has bilingual staff or would you go to the cheap one because we really just want your house cleaned you know yeah. so it's it's not really choice in and in the rural areas there's nothing yeah and, and now instead of calling it you know we're going to um, provide a service to the most vulnerable it's all about thin markets <sighs> and oh i know it's bad oh it's a neoliberal nightmare it is it truly is and you yeah and so, well, it looks like um, you know. It sounds like a lot of your energy goes towards um, you know trying to make your be be a, a productive, but mm. it's also um, working for the community. Mm. That, that's got to be that's got to take a lot out of you. How yeah. do you how do you find oh, the work life balance? Not great. <laughs> <laughs> Because in my spare time, I still do forest stuff as well. So I am, I do, uh, right now, what is it, two days before the election, I am feeling a little bit burnt out. But, um, yeah, like I said, my strategy is get out of the city as much as I can. Um, but, yeah, I'm not great at the whole self-care thing, that's for sure. Well, it's and also with, with, with issues like this that, um, you know, are so um, enraging. Mm. You know, it's really difficult to yeah. leave it at work. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I know. I rant about it quite a lot, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you've got to vent somewhere yeah. because you, because you've got to go back the next day and and be productive. Yeah. So, um, you know, were, do you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have one sister. Yeah, oh, I have three stepbrothers as well. And do you were, are they as community spirited nah. as you? No way. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, not at all. Very corporate, actually. What do you think, um, you know, what, what's the difference? Yeah, how do you, how do you think, um, you know, you fell into it, into feeling like more responsible for your community than, yeah. than the others? It's ne- I've never thought about it, to tell you the truth. I'm thinking about it now. Um, I'm not sure. I think getting out of Perth is definitely a winner for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to anyone yeah. who's listening from Perth. I'm yeah. sure it's lovely for some. <laughs> oh, no, it is lovely for some. They have great beaches. Um, yeah, I don't know. My sister just never did that. She never did any activist stuff as far as I know. 
and she took a more corporate path. And she's also married and has two kids. And yeah. well, I suppose sometimes you know it's almost like um, you know that uh, rebelling against the parent if the parents mm. really. You know, mm. if the parents are here, then the kids become corporate. Yeah, you know? well, that is that's true. Yeah, because I mean, definitely, I don't remember her coming to those blockades and things when with my mum or going on any rallies. I think my mum may have just taken me. Okay, I'm thinking. So mm. maybe that's what it's about. Mm. Mm. And um, so you said your your parents split up when mm. you were quite young. Um, mm. Do you know your father very well? Yeah, or? I see. I mean, he's uh, he's in Perth as well. I don't see him very often. Maybe once a year for Christmas. <laughs> That's about it. But he's not got the same um, activist bug or any kind of aligned value system at all. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yes. My my dad was a police officer under Bianca Peterson. Yeah, it was. Uh, we we're quite at polar ends of yeah. the spectrum. Wow. But um, you know, yeah, it's, it's a challenge to maintain those relationships sometimes, mm, isn't it? Yeah. No, I don't really have much of an interest in that. But I do kind of in a in theoretical way. I think I should, but I just don't put in the time. No, well, you know, you know, it works both ways. You know, mm. you're not the only person in the relationship, are you? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned before that, um, you know, the group you're working with now. Mm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, the work that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I work for Housing for the Aged Action Group, and they were they started off as an activist group about 30 odd years ago. Um, and one of the reasons that I was attracted to working with them was because it reminded me of what Gecko was like um, in terms of being, you know, starting as an activist group. But the difference with Gecko was that we never got large amounts of government funding, so um, we never became incorporated or had to jump through hoops, whereas HAG, in providing a service, um, does have all of that. And I thought I'd be able to straddle both worlds because I've done both. Um, and has those values of being really staunchly political, mm. but now it has the juggling of having to deal with funders and funding requirements and also government scrutiny. Mm. Um, so it's a tension, but I think having lived on both sides of the fence, I understand where it's coming from and I kind of hope that I'll be able to assist going forward. In We've gone through 18 months of hell, basically, um, with a lot of government scrutiny, mm. and it hasn't been great. There's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of trauma for the staff. and But the whole time, we haven't dropped the ball in terms of providing a service for people, older people. So it's a housing service. It's definitely getting worse out there. People are getting older and poorer, and housing is less affordable, and there's less investment in public housing, and rents are skyrocketing and all, all that stuff. So the demand is increasing, the pressure on the workers is increasing and that it's, hard, it's, it's definitely hard. And, but luckily I don't have to do much of that frontline stuff um, and I can just try and support the organisation to continue as it goes forward into the new era. Hmm. So yeah, it's been the eight, last eighteen months has been pretty rough for Hag, but I think we're through the worst of it. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. It's 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 mind boggling, isn't it, when you think of um, you know when the government decides to uh, well make public mm. or or privatise really yeah. um, uh, organisations like this. Um, uh, the um, for-profit organisations have next to no scrutiny whatsoever. Yeah. Why is that? 
I just don't understand it. I don't understand it either. Yeah. You know, it's mind-boggling, yet uh, an organisation that is solely existent for the good of the community is put under a microscope. Yeah. And and that's fine because as, as an organisation that is honestly mm. for the community... Mm. You can bear scrutiny. You're accountable. That's right. You know, you yeah. can account for every dollar that gets and where it gets spent. Yeah. You, yeah. Yet that that kind of accountability is not required for, um, say, the privatised social housing groups. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's it's crazy, and it's you you are put through so many hoops. And when I was working in the ethnic sector, that was the problem. These little tiny groups that started off, you know, as a social group for whatever community, and they pulled their resources and saved up and built these buildings and they built these services and they were surviving on the tiniest little bits of government funding but everything was going online which meant they couldn't report the funding is coming less and less and less it got to the stage if they didn't merge with people other groups they Mm. were going to be gone and they didn't want to merge with other groups because they built it up from scratch and so yeah just their whole the risk and governance and all of that kind of accountability that's on small groups. Mm. It's so extreme, but yet bad shit still happens. Mm. And I don't know if all of this risk and reporting and and fear, I guess, from the funders Mm. is really um, worth it because when you think about didn't stop people, you know, getting abused in nursing homes or Mm. didn't stop people dying in you know Mm. hotel rooms waiting for housing or whatever so it's yeah i just i'm not sure why it's come like that or why i feel like the country's changing and it's become more risk averse and more kind of american style i guess and less um community kind of grassroots and trusting the community to know what's good for itself and and just let it go Mm. Absolutely, and and also like there's a really mainstream uh, effort to denigrate mm. um, people who are active on a grass, grassroots level. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. How look you, at uh, look yeah. at the papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, do you, how do you find? Um, how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, I. Um, yeah, so I like working for organisations that have the the participants like the recipients of the service involved in the service oh, yeah. like I think it's really important and um, one of the things that I learned when I was a young greenie in East Gippsland was I could walk into any shop and be spat on and refuse service and just be super polite just kill them with politeness and also not back down mm. so the amount of times I was refused service in Orbost I could go into the post office and not be served or go into any shop and not be served or if I was served, treated like absolute scum, and I stuck it out for 15 years, and I just stared those bitches down. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's what I I'm yeah, I just think we got to stand your ground. Like it's not in an aggressive way, just mm. in a don't be ashamed. Mm. They're going to try and shame you, mm. and don't back down because you're you know you are who you are, mm. and it's legitimate. And your perspective is just as important. So that's so now, when I'm working, I want to get the people that have used the service into the service because they have, they might not know. We have to balance it, of course. So mm. they might not know about 
um, risk assessment or governance or whatever, but they do have a perspective that's really important. They need to be involved. Yep, lived experience. And they need to tell us about what we need to be doing better. That needs to be balanced with people that do have that understanding of risk assessment and governance or else we wouldn't have a service. Mm. So it's that thing where we're constantly having this balance between the right number of people Mm. involved. Like if you have too many lived experience people or people who are bringing that value or, or older people who have got, wealth of life experience but maybe don't know the latest about funding agreements or whatever yeah versus we don't want to go fully you know down the legalese kind of disempowering thing either so Mm. that's the balance that i'm trying to achieve at the moment and it's um it's definitely tricky but i think it can be achieved and yeah I think, I mean, 3CR is a great example of grassroots organising and diversity and managing diversity. And the thing that I've recently kind of come to be aware of is you can say you want diversity, but diversity means listening to diverse opinions. Mm. It means listening to people that you don't agree with or people that don't tow your party line and they haven't drunk the Kool-Aid, you know. And so that means you're going to be challenged. Mm. But, hey, that's okay because diversity is good. It makes us stronger. Mm. And even if you don't agree with someone, you don't ban them. You try and include them, you know. Mm. Well, that's what community is, isn't it? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I'm living up in Coburg at the moment and I've noticed, um, you know, Book, little things like book fridges, mm. like there's a, a fridge outside the train station that you you take your books to, and just these these little tiny things that the community does for itself, yeah. you know, that that give you a sense of belonging, yeah. you know. Uh, how um, how can people uh, you know contribute in a positive way yeah. to some of these issues? Do yeah. you think? I think it's like you say, being involved in the community in social connection. Like I think the reason you were asking before about what stops burnout and why people do stuff, I guess I think the personal connections that you make with people, especially in a heavy activist environment where maybe shit's going down, you've got to rely on your friends. Mm. That forms bonds that you're always going to have for life because you're it's like being i guess it was what like the first world war those kids going off together mm. for an exciting adventure that's what it's like when you're doing kind of actions or whatever but it doesn't have to be dramatic it can be whatever um whatever suits you you know like i mean if it's an online petition if it's i saw some classic um, paste-ups on the posters outside that someone's gone around and done. It's hilarious. Good on them, you know. And I think anything, that's the other thing that I've realised, is don't throw out any tool. Like, we spend so much time complaining about tactics and what's the right thing to do and you shouldn't be doing this, you should be doing that. And it's like, don't, just do it all. Mm. Do it all. Mm. Don't worry about whether it's the right thing to do because or the wrong thing at the right time or whatever. Sooner or later it's going to coalesce and you're going to hit the nail on the head. Mm. But don't diss other people's tactics if you don't think they're the right tactics because, honestly, at this time, we all got to be doing something, whatever that is, Mm. something urgently. We don't have much time left. Yeah, it's true because, you know, civil liberties just are eroding um, before our very eyes. And and it seems like there's an entire – the majority of the populace has just got their eyes closed. Yeah, civil liberties and impending climate catastrophe. So. Guys, do something, anything, doesn't matter what it is, just do it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair yeah. enough. So, um, Hag, I've, I sort of, I was homeless in St Kilda for a while yeah. and um, I came across, uh, I was singing with the Bipolar Bears and, oh, yeah. you know, I came across Hag and April through, yeah. through them. Um, I know that Hag's got a program on 3CR. Yes. When's that on exactly? Soon. 
Yeah, it's on tonight. Okay, so, but it's yeah. only um, one Once particular. Once a month. Yeah, so yes. said, what Wednesday is it a month? What, what Wednesday are we on now? Oh, that's very is good it the question. second or the third? It's the third. It's the third Wednesday of the month. Okay. And it's at six o'clock and it's called Raise the Roof. Raise the Roof. Yeah, and tonight's episode has an interview with Val's Cafe, which is the LGBTI ageing and aged care service. Um, it started off as a cafe in Melbourne mm-hmm. um, back in the 50s. Wow. Well, it's named after that anyway. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're starting to reach out to the LGBTI community and look at their... Not There's a bit of a gap in terms of knowledge around older people and LGBTI housing issues. So sure. a lot of the focus is on youth and we want to see what it's like for older people um, and so we're hoping to start that work soon. So what, um, what, type of, what, what type of issues are in the gap, do you see? Yeah, well, this is super anecdotal because there hasn't really been any sure. research, but um, we're hearing that older trans people are moving to the country for cheaper rent, so becoming more socially isolated as a result, mm. um, that um, older lesbians don't tend to own their own home, but perhaps older gay men do. There could be a gap there. Mm-hmm. But anecdotally, from what I hear just through people I know, there's a lot of people in the private rental market. Um, and, you know, they might not have the family supports, or um, especially as they get older. Mm-hmm. And with people that have faced a lifetime of discrimination and mistrust of services and the fear of also being re-closeted, going into ResiCare, obviously that's a bad thing that nobody wants. So... Mm-hmm. But private rental is not a great place for older people, especially if you're on a pension. So mm. um, we need to do a bit of research, but we also need to talk to community people about what they know, what, what their living circumstances are and what, what they want in an ideal world in terms of when you're getting old, where do you want to hang out, you know? Mm. Mm. <laughs> what, what's your plan? Have you got a plan? And, and how can we maybe help with that plan about providing housing options and Obviously, doing more housing is the main thing. But yeah, and not, not selling it off to private housing organisations. Yeah, preferably not that. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah, in the meantime, we need to get info to people and we need to find out what they already know and what their circumstances are. So is there anywhere, like, say, if there was a, a listener mm. um, who feels that they fit into that yeah, um, category? Yeah, give us a call. Yeah. yeah. Where can they contact So you? we've got a website. It's um, www.oldertenants.org.au. Um, we also, and that has a phone number and an email, um, and we're really actually really interested in hearing from older LGBTI people who either own their own home or renting or whatever circumstances they're in. We want to hear what they and their friends are currently doing mm. as older people in the community. How connected are they and mm. what, yeah, what are they thinking? What their experience what is. What their experience is, yeah. Yeah. Well, and also... Um, with is it do you, does Hag have any actions coming up or do you, do you guys do any actions? Yeah, well, actions in the kind of traditional sense in terms of banners and megaphones, not so much anymore. We mm-hmm. do occasionally, mm-hmm. um, but what we've done for the election is put up some information around where the three main parties stand on housing, um, and that's on our website. And we're also as our AGM tomorrow, so I'll be handing that out. At our AGM. So, so what's the HAG website? Um, oldertenants.org.au. Okay. And the other thing is on retirement housing. We've done a lot of campaigning on retirement housing. Mm. Um, and that's been working with a whole bunch of people who live in retirement housing that have told us about their issues around crappy management and bad contracts and um, dodgy fees and all this sort of stuff. So we've been working with them for ages and we've got an ombudsman um, proposal up that we're hoping that the government will support but so far only the Libs and the Greens have supported that um, and yeah we're really hoping that because they've campaigned hard for a long time 
on this issue. And it's really great to see that we're starting to get somewhere. Um, they're a really empowered group too. And the other thing... So you do feel like you're starting to yeah, gain some ground? with retirement housing, yeah. yeah. So, for example, the um, Residential Tenancies Act reforms, one of the things that got in there was around compensation for um, caravan park closures. Oh. And we had a lot of people... Because land values rise and that's a place where low-income people used to retire. Mm, um, maybe not the best housing, but that's they put all of their savings into a little cabin or whatever. Mm. Um, but then the land gets sold out from under them because it's worth a lot of money these days and where do they go? So we had a rash of closures and the One Turner Residence Action Group approached us for assistance because their whole park got closed and most of them were elderly wow. and they didn't have anywhere, literally nowhere to go. Just shows it's such a, such a callous disregard yeah. for, for members of our community. Who have been working their whole lives and saved money and put it into their thing, you know, and this is what happens to them. So, yeah, HAG and, and RAG <laughs> um, ended up contacting all the crossbenchers and trying to get um, the legislation passed because of the compensation clause, and it did get passed. So that was good. Yeah. And, yeah, it's not going to help the guys now, but in the future mm. maybe people will think twice about closing caravan parts without thinking about the residents. Mm. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that, that eternal hope that mm. um, human life is more important than a dollar. Yeah. You know, gosh. <laughs> one, what a concept, yeah. you know. It's a pity you have to hit them with a big stick to make them realise, hey. It, yeah, it's, it, and what feels, what, it, what feels so viscerally innate mm. t- to us is just completely foreign mm-hmm. to the mainstream. Yeah, totally. you know, And it really feels like pushing shit uphill. It really know? does. <laughs> so, well, uh, listeners, if there's anyone out there who's, um, who is an older tenant or uh, an older tenant um, who's within the LGBTQI community and um, you'd like to share your lived experience, go along to oldertenants.org.au. Mm, that's the one. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah, every, your, your stories, your voices are important. Yeah. And yeah. we really want to hear from old people. Yeah. yeah. So that'll be great great well look thanks so much for your time this afternoon no it's worries. been great talking to you Thank and you. thanks so much for the work that you do because like you say every little bit counts but it's just it's it's always nice to see someone who just for them it just couldn't live any other way but to give to the community, you know. Yeah, it's, so I hadn't um, thought about it like that, but thank you. But it's it's really, really invaluable, and um, it's very much appreciated by everyone. So thank you so much for your time. Um, if you'd like to hear more, listen to um, HAG tonight. It's every third Wednesday on 3CR at 6 o'clock. And, uh, yeah, you find out a little bit more. Or go to oldertenants.org.au and tell your story because um, your story is important and HAG wants to hear from you. That's right. Okay. Yep. Thanks so much again for your time, Fiona. Thank you.
the call. He left me on my arm. I could see no reason to find my way back home. Could be struggling for you.